Heavenly Father, we've just uh, sung about full assurance of love, uh, confidence in coming before you, uh, and joy. And we ask as we look at your word together, uh, you'd convince us of those things, and you'd show us why we have full assurance in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, do take a seat. Uh, let me say good evening to you uh, again. And it would be really helpful um, if you grab hold of one of the Bibles uh, near you and turn back to Galatians uh, chapter 2, I think on page 1169. If you've not been along before, uh, great to see you here at Christchurch with us tonight. We're going to look at the Bible together now for, uh, a few, uh, for a bit of time and it would really help you if you had the Bible open in front of you. And while you do that, let me say, I'm told it's, I'm told it's compelling viewing. I don't know if you watch it. The Apprentice on the BBC, 16 people, uh, after one job with Alan Sugar. The boardroom scene is the best part. Uh, the losing team leader, if you don't know how it works, the losing team leader with two assistants face uh, the displeasure of Sir, Sir Alan for not winning uh, the task they were set, and they have to defend themselves. Two weeks ago, it was a chap called Ian Stringer, along with uh, two assistants, Simon and Kevin. Uh, the conversation uh, went something like this uh, from Alan Sugar. Ian, there's been some very strong arguments raised about your poor management of this task. I think there's no smoke without fire. Kevin, You speak a good game, but I wonder if there's some smoke and mirrors in your argument. Simon, you're staying this week. Ian, this was a total disaster. Quite frankly, I think you lost it. And then the words everyone loves to hear, Ian, you're fired. And so it goes, uh, The Apprentice. With Galatians uh, that we're looking at uh, over these next few weeks, uh, we're not in the boardroom, uh, but someone is certainly in the hot seat. And it's not the apprentice, as we heard last week, it's the apostle, Paul. That's my tenuous link. (laughs) And defending himself, well, his desire is not kind of preserving job prospects. It's to do with his message about Jesus. Has Paul got it right? People had come to the Galatian churches with a kind of different message of Christianity, an altered one. And when it was found to conflict with Paul's, well, the slander started. Oh yes, the, the apostles have the true message about Jesus, but, but Paul's not one of the real apostles. Now the real ones are in Jerusalem where we are from, and, and let me tell you, they take a rather dim view of Paul. Now last week we heard Paul defend his ministry, acquitted himself as well as any apprentice in Alan Sugar's boardroom, And with that, affirmed the authenticity of his gospel message. Do you remember last week? Uh, Paul had met those Jerusalem apostles. It's in chapter 2 and verse 6. If you've got it there in front of you, just have a look down. Paul says this when he met them. uh, Those men added nothing to my message. My message was the same as theirs. You see, those troubling the Galatians now were nothing new. It had all happened before. And Paul said, verse 5 of chapter 2, Back then, we did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. It wasn't the only time Paul defended the gospel. Another occasion was in our reading tonight. And you see in that, far from being an inferior to the Jerusalem apostles, Paul had an occasion to confront one of them. It was there in verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. It wasn't the content of his gospel message. Paul's explained Peter taught exactly the same thing as he did. No, it's verse 14. I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. See, this apostle has been in the hot seat. He's had to defend the gospel, not just from people who would distort it with wrong teaching, but from those who would undermine it with compromised living. So do you wonder which you're in more danger of? As you get older, have you noticed how everyone else starts to look younger? Almost too young. Students, even students graduating this year, how young do first years look? It's worse for those of us who are even older. I keep thinking, how young do doctors look? A voice recently broken, barely out of short trousers. Uh, They stand with stethoscope in hand, asking what's making you feel uncomfortable. Uh, And you're thinking, uh, well, apart from the fact you don't seem old enough to have taken your GCSEs. (laughs) So you look for some reassurance, don't you? you? You notice other doctors treat them with a bit of respect. They seem confident with medical terminology, reassurance obtained. They're the real deal in terms of medicine. And so you let them get on with treating you. Now I say that because I think that's kind of what Paul's doing at this point in his letter. He's the real deal in terms of apostleship. We need to know that. He knows and defends, how did he put it? The truth of the gospel. It's just that from now on in Galatians, he's going to make the shift from uh, defending his ministry to what we're to let him get on with. Explaining what the truth of the gospel is. Uh, That phrase has has sat like an enticingly wrapped present. Well, we've been kind of reading the card telling us who it's from. But from here on in, uh, we're going to open it. And as we do, we'll see the truth of the gospel seems tied up with, well, with one big question. It's a question that everyone asks, and I mean that whether you consider yourself religious or whether you think of yourself as an atheist. You'll ask it, and your friends will ask it as well. And the question is this, it's on the handout if you're following along with that. The question is, how are you going to be justified? And Paul uses that word justified four times in verses 16 and 17. I know what you may be thinking. Look, none of my friends ask that question. I've never heard any of them when I've met them at work or down the pub. They've never asked me that question at once. So what does justified mean? How exactly is it the big question? Well, it kind of means to be in the right To have a verdict on your life that says, well, you're okay. You're acceptable. Religious people ask that question and they might answer it with, well, read religious books or or pray. But if you're not religious, you'll ask it just as much. You might not use this specific uh, word, but you will have thought, won't you? What will make me okay? What, What makes me acceptable? So, So the young guy who kind of prides himself on his fashion-conscious image, not just because he enjoys clothes, but because he's discovered uh, people notice me more like this. 
I get their approval because I'm cool and I stand out. They're not wrong in enjoying clothes, but, but what's going on in his thinking? He's thinking, my image justifies me. That's what makes me okay. Or the single woman hoping for the long-term relationship, not, not just for the joy that it might bring, but because if she achieves the marriage ideal, she hopes she'll finally get the approval of her parents, who never seem quite satisfied with what she's done with her life. If she could get their approval, she'd feel okay, acceptable. See, what's going on in her thinking? A parental approval will justify me. Or you're the doctor, perhaps, whose patients don't come from S10. And you're quick with the snide jokes about the kind of people you treat, the way they dress, their poorer vocabulary, their holiday destinations. And why do you feel free to think like that? It's because you feel that what makes you okay is your career or your friends and your Caribbean suntan. So what's going on in your thinking? Now, my career has justified me. I'm okay because of these things. I know everyone asks this question one way or another. But you wonder why. Now, why we long for acceptance, for the okay verdict on our lives. Why we anxiously worry at times, am I good enough? Do I deserve that promotion? Will she say yes when I ask? So we can act indifferent, not bothered. But you know your heart warms when someone says, you're one of us. You're with us, aren't you? We love it. And the Bible tells us the reason why we're after that kind of thing. It's, it's because we've rebelled against the only one whose verdict on our lives actually counts. Because we're out of relationship with him. Things are not okay. It's evidence that at some level we know we mess up in God's world. We know we're not what we should be, yet we long to be accepted. So we're looking for justification. And we look in various places, but where we need to find it is with God. And according to the Bible, how we answer this question will shape not just who we are now, but whether we're going to find eternal joy or eternal despair. So listen to the answer that the Apostle gives. And it's this on your handout. At trusting Christ... God says we're totally accepted. You might agree we're we're all looking to be justified. What's it going to take to make us acceptable to God? Paul's answer is is midway through verse 16 where he says this. We too have put our faith, our, our trust in Christ Jesus that we may be justified, that we might be acceptable by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. You get God's eternal approval not by what you've done but through trusting Jesus Christ. That is the truth of the gospel. So look, as we continue in Galatians over the next few weeks, we'll we'll see how that's possible, how God can forgive you through the cross of Jesus Christ, punishes everything you've done wrong in him so that you're free. But Paul is clear. A trust in Christ, you're totally accepted. 
And so you understand the standoff between Peter and Paul in verse 11. Peter's come to Antioch. It's a Gentile city. He's had a great time with these Christians who weren't from a Jewish background. He'd hung out with them, ate meals with them, and then some men arrived from Jerusalem who started to say, if you want to be acceptable to God, then you need to trust Jesus and you also need to reach a certain standard of obedience to the Jewish religious laws especially circumcision in this case. Now, Peter didn't believe that. He didn't believe it, but, verse 12, he began to draw back, separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He wanted to keep the peace with them in some way. But you imagine a young Gentile Christian watching Peter we're starting to think, oh, why won't Peter spend time with us? Or perhaps if, perhaps if I'm going to fit in with Peter and with God, there are certain things that I'd need to do as well as trust Jesus. You understand the effect that will have on him. Instead of in his days when he feels wretched, instead of, of joyfully knowing he's freely accepted by God through Jesus, he's now thinking, Am I good enough today? Have I done enough? Will it be all right? Well, you imagine a young Christian student today watching other Christian friends uh, gathering themselves into a more exclusive group. Well, we, we just want to go a little bit further in spiritual things. You imagine this young Christian thinking, uh, what would I need to do to be acceptable there? What other thing as well as trusting Jesus? Now, Paul responds to Peter in two ways initially. At verse 14, he says this to him, Look, Peter, you, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. And you live that way. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now, Peter, you don't live like this. Now, do you remember, Peter, Jesus' forgiveness to you? wasn't conditional on being a good Jew. And then he says, verse 15, Peter, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Look, Peter, we know the Old Testament never told us we could be good enough. Never told us that. Perhaps he was thinking about King David's words in Psalm 143 that we read earlier, where he says, no one living is righteous before you. No one does it. As we think about that, I guess the thing for us, so for us, well, understand where you find ultimate approval. People sometimes think that if they become Christians, It'll just enslave you to a set of rules. You'll have to perform with, with God pulling the strings. But the opposite's true. But Jesus Christ sets you free. Now, the trouble with entrusting your ultimate sense of acceptance to the approval of, of parents or career or relationship or, or religious rules is, well, you become enslaved by them. Either worrying, have I been good enough? Or, or becoming smug, I, I know I'm good enough. And if I lose their approval, well, I feel like I've lost everything. 
If it was all tied up with my job and I lose my job, then I've, I've lost everything. See, but Paul's saying, if you get to know God through Jesus Christ, well, you'll find the acceptance that your soul is hungry for. That's failing to find in any lasting way in all these other places. In Jesus Christ, you get the approval of your eternal creator. So that even if the temporary things of life let you down, as they always do, you'll never be lost or abandoned. And you'll enjoy his approval eternally. So Jesus Christ will free you to enjoy the things of this life without having to base your security on them. My friends, if you're trusting Jesus, enjoy this. You're free and accepted by God. And if that's true for you, then the next point is, so don't make it difficult for others. See, how do you assess whether other people are acceptable? Uh, the trouble these troublemakers uh, in the Galatian churches had circumcision. That was their thing. It, it'll be different for us. Uh, how wide do you draw the circle? Before you say, actually, to be a Christian, you need to do a little bit more than that. I won't make someone an acceptable uh, Christian to you. That they trust Jesus and they have a quiet time every day. And they don't smoke. And their children behave well. Have you found yourself drawing away from other Christians? Well, they just don't know how to worship properly. Well, they're just not into the same spiritual stuff as me. Well, they just talk too much. I find them frustrating because they're not as thought through as the people I want to hang out with. My dear friends, be careful when you're saying, I don't want to be around those Christians. You're not suggesting they're not acceptable. Now, what makes someone acceptable is that they trust Jesus. If you draw the circle any wider than that, it's not the gospel anymore. And it's not them you've excluded from the gospel. It's yourself. So in a few minutes, we'll say words like these. Uh, we do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness but in your manifold and great mercies. See, what a joy to be able to say that. I come here not trusting in myself, only in what you've done for me. And if that's how we hope to be treated, if that's how we expect to be treated because of Jesus, well, we mustn't do anything that makes it difficult for others to live enjoying this same acceptance. Oh, secondly, and more briefly, uh, trusting Christ, we never rely on ourselves. In verses 17 to 21, uh, Paul seems to be kind of verbalizing what some of his critics are saying in verse 17. Let me just read it uh, for you. Uh, they're saying something like this. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? I think the complaint is this. It looks a little bit complicated at first, but I think what it is is this. Uh, they're saying, look, we Jews, with all our laws, seemed like we were on the inside with God. And now we're being told, we just need to trust Jesus. It's not about keeping all these laws. We just need to trust Jesus. But in doing that, many people clearly still struggle with sin. 
So shouldn't we tell Christians they need to keep some laws? Otherwise, if we sin, once we become Christians, doesn't that mean Jesus just encourages sin? Doesn't that mean we become lawbreakers? And Paul says, absolutely not. Then why not? Oh, why wouldn't you be a lawbreaker if you sin? Why, if you're a Christian tonight, why could you have sinned and not be a lawbreaker in God's eyes? Oh, it's a, that's a strange thought, isn't it? To, to have sinned and not be a lawbreaker. Well, look, follow Paul's argument in verse 19. Just have a look at it. Here's what he says. Well, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Look, in our house, sometimes there are fights. Not real fights, just kind of mucking around ones. Julia gets angry and says something like, right, I'm going to get you. There's a struggle and I say something like, oh, you're really strong. I think you're going to get me this time. You'll probably win. But the outcome's always the same. I win. (laughs) I'm fatter. I carry the weight advantage. That's the way it goes. Look, when people get around God's law, the outcome is always the same. It always shows up that we're sinful. And God's law says, sinful people must die. So how can Paul... A sinful man say that he's free to live for God. How can a sinful man, in light of God's law that says sinful people must die, say he's free to live for God? Well, it's verse 20, isn't it? He says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul saying, the law says I had to die. And I have died. When I trusted Christ, God linked me to him and his death counted for me. So if I sin now and God comes to deal with me legally, the outcome is always the same. All the requirements of the law have been fulfilled. God's law has been satisfied for those who trust Jesus. So you can't be a lawbreaker in that sense if you trust Jesus. There's there's no more laws you need to fulfill to be acceptable. Jesus has done it for you. See, God's law in the Old Testament was meant to convince us that we're sinful, guilty before God, deserving his judgment. We can never be good enough on our own merits. We need him to provide a rescuer. As someone who will deal with her sin totally. And if it is a rescue, then it's impossible to say, I'm just relying on my own good works. Uh, The law is meant to teach us to, to tear down any suggestion that our good works make us right with God. So, so understand who the real lawbreakers are. That's what Paul means in verse 18 when he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker, or then I really would be a lawbreaker. It's anyone or any church who after saying they trust Jesus alone starts to act in a way that suggests their own good behavior or achievements 
contribute to making them okay with God. That's breaking God's law. The day you're really wretched as a Christian, you get up late, you don't read your Bible, you kick the cat, you make a child cry, you miss the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus, and you throw yourself on his grace and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. God says, you're not a lawbreaker in my eyes. God has, or Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. You're acceptable. At the day you get up early, read the Bible, feed the cat, chat about God on the bus, and because of that, feel you're probably all right with God. God says, be very, very careful. At the day a friend from church has let you down, has upset or offended you, has sinned in some way against you, and instead of forgiving them and looking to make things right, you start to treat them as if they're unacceptable. You're beginning to act like a lawbreaker. Now, depending on who you are, you could have two wrong responses to that. Uh, There could be some who say, well, that's terrible. Uh, People can sin and it doesn't matter. It's It's a recipe for disastrous living if you're saying that. Or there could be some others who think, that's brilliant. Well, I can sin and it doesn't matter. The the Christians who told me I shouldn't go out with someone who's who's not a Christian were wrong. The people who told me I should read the Bible and be committed to church were wrong. If you think in either of those ways, you've not heard Paul properly. Yes, if you're trusting Jesus, you are totally acceptable to God. But if you are trusting him, your life will be being radically changed. So understand why your life will be transformed. Look at verse 20 again. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. At the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You hear the transformation Paul speaks of? See, the faith that unites you with Christ's death so that you can enjoy God's love and approval is at the same time a faith that unites you with his life. See, how do you you know if you've got genuine faith? How do you know if you're really trusting Christ? Well, it's because you won't rely on yourself. You won't rely on yourself to get right with God. And you won't rely on yourself to know how to live. Uh, Paul tells us about the thought process that genuine faith puts into the heart and mind of every authentic Christian. Here's what he says. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, if you're genuinely trusting Jesus... You'll never think, I can sin and it doesn't matter. If you still think like that, then it's probably because you're not a Christian yet. No, you'll be thinking, the Son of God loved me, gave himself for me, and today I want to live trusting him. So I don't need to change in order to be right with God, but being right with God through trusting Jesus it's impossible that my life won't start to change. 
Have you seen that happening in your own life? I'd hate to be in the boardroom of the apprentice facing Alan Sugar, wondering if he thinks I've been good enough. Wondering if the next voice I hear will say, you're fired. But because of Jesus, and because he died for me, when this life is over, and I'm taken into the presence of Almighty God, the next voice I hear will say, welcome home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these great truths about your Son. Please would you give us a seriousness about dwelling on them and thinking them through so that we might understand what it means for our relationship with you, our acceptance and approval. And please would you help us to ponder what it means for the way we treat other people, not excluding them because of ridiculous things, or because of performance, but welcoming everyone who trusts Jesus as a brother and a sister in Christ. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in that. Amen.